The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Live from the Nasdaq market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Red Sea risk factor, BP, the latest company to stop sailing through the highly trafficked shipping channel as a result of attacks by militants from Yemen. Could this have a lasting impact on energy in the supply chain? We'll do a deep dive. Plus, bruised Apple, the tech titan pausing sales for two of its new watches over a dispute around the blood oxygen feature on the wearable devices. A look at the impact this will have on the tech giant coming up. And later, an obesity bummer. Shares of Structure Therapeutics crushed as test results of their GLP-1 pill did not match the effectiveness of shots from Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk. Can anyone catch up to these fat-busting titans? I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Courtney Garcia, Dan Nathan, our guest trader for the hour, Savita Subramanian of Bank of America Securities. Welcome, Savita. Thanks. But first, we start off with the Red Sea attacks. BP, the latest company on a growing list to halt shipments through the area. NBC's Ali Aruzi is in Cairo, joins us now with more on the escalating situation. Ali. BP is now the latest company to suspend its vessels traveling through the Red Sea after a string of attacks by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. The oil giant has blamed the deteriorating security situation in the region. And look, Houthi attacks on vessels and shipping lines in the region have significantly increased in recent days, with almost daily attacks being launched. The Houthis say that they firmly back the Palestinian cause uh, and they won't let up on, on their attacks uh, until medication and other essential goods can get into Gaza. They say they won't allow ships to, uh, to reach Israeli ports until that happens. Now, at the moment, the U.S. seems reluctant to attack the Houthis for fear of widening the war and provoking Iran. What they may be planning is to launch an expanded maritime protection force to ensure vessels have safe passage. Ali, thank you, Ali Ruzi in Cairo for us. WTI, meantime, popping a percent and a half in the U.S. The Red Sea attacks are in a key area for transporting the world's energy supply. CNBC's Pippa Stevens got more on this threat and what it could do to the system. Hey, Melissa, oil rising today as tensions build in the Red Sea, given that it's a vital energy artery. About 12 percent of global seaborne crude passed through the Suez Canal, Sumed Pipeline and Bab el-Mandab Strait, during the first half of the year, according to the Energy Information Administration. At 9.2 million barrels per day, that's about 9 percent of daily global demand. Additionally, about 8 percent of worldwide LNG, or 4.1 billion cubic feet per day, passed through the waterway. Energy trade flows have shifted since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, meaning the canal has taken on greater importance. Crew traveling north through the canal is up 60 percent relative to 2020, in part because Europe is importing more oil from the Middle East. Meantime, Russian oil is now 74 percent of southbound crude traffic in the canal. That's compared to just 30 percent two years ago as it sends more crude to India and China. Melissa. All right. Thank you, Pippa Stevens. As you mentioned at the top, oil was just off one and a half percent. Why such a shrug, Tim? You would think that this sort of headline would really be scary unless 
we've just got so much supply swooshing around. Well, we've, we've heard about OPEC, OPEC plus. There's a lot of supply. Saudi could also make up with any disruption very quickly. And I think they've been under a lot of pressure to eat a lot of the extra supply cuts that at least are out there already. Uh, you can make an argument that every time you have a supply disruption, it's not a reason to go buy oil. It, it's a one day trade. It's a two day trade. It's a two week trade. Um, I, look, we, we can see right now Brent's at you know, essentially two year lows and you're you're between the 70 to 75 dollar uh, a barrel level. I, I think there's probably decent support. It's trading on economic weakness. There's no question about it. And if you look at oil energy equities, I, I think they're interesting. I think, you know, you're trading at two to three standard deviations, depending on which ones you're looking at, cheap to the market. I, I understand energy is always cheap. It's always cheap P.E. It's always a low P.E. But relative to the market, it's a very attractive time when I think these companies have significant operational leverage and they break even on, on their divs at, you know, Euro, European integrators break even at, you know, 40 bucks um, and they're paying big divs. So I, I you know, I, I kind of like this. Isn't it interesting that you just said that crude's trading near two year lows on perceived economic weakness? Mm-hmm. There are very few other risk assets that right. we look at every day that you could say that. And, and, uh, and that has been my take. I mean, you know, two months ago when it was trading above $90 or whatever, you know, was it trading on perceived strength? It was trading on some odd, uh, you know, economic strength on, on supply demand dynamics, you know. So down here, I just wonder what catches up to it, you know. And I look at like the way the Shanghai Composites trading. I look at Chinese stocks. I look at the data that's coming out of there. So it's just kind of interesting that we've spent a long time, well, a lot of time over the last couple of weeks just talking about what the rate cut, you know, pull forward means for risk assets and all that sort of stuff. And I'm saying to myself, you know, I look at what uh, Fed Chair Powell did last week and I say, I think he's looking out beyond normalizing. I think he's like worried about some other Uh, things. I I mean, I'm just saying that. Yeah, you're in the the conspiracy camp. But we said that Jeffrey Gunlock said that. What's the conspiracy? Well, no, but that. that, I mean, not a conspiracy, but right, that that there's something actually worse out on the horizon. And that's why the Fed is going out and pivoting now. Yeah. I mean, that was my take. That was Jeffrey Gunlock's take immediately yeah. after the Fed presser mm-hmm. on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Would you agree I don't, with that? I don't, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we tend to disagree. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, I think the Fed's pausing because we've got inflation under control. We're starting to see things kind of normalize. Supply chain disruption seems to be normalized. So I, I don't know if I see any sort of black cloud out there. Yeah, but normalized with a 1.4% GDP expected for next year, which is below the 10-year. I mean, like, you know, so to me. Which would be great, by the way, but that would be probably good for equities, wouldn't it? I mean, if That'd we get one and a half percent GDP, I, I think yeah. you know, it's a lot better than what. Well, I think it expect. seems optimistic. I mean, like, like so if, if crude is telling us something, if China is telling us something like the idea of like coming off of these aberration prints that we've seen in GDP over the last couple uh-huh. of quarters, I mean, we could swing to the other side or negative really quickly. I think crude is telling us that we're in a balance, a supply demand balance. I mean, a lot of what we've seen over the last few years is energy companies in the U.S. at least getting supply discipline, kind of moderating the band of where oil trades. So maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe it's just oil is actually less volatile than it's been in the past. I think that's the 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 positive take on this. <laughs> yeah, and I would agree with that, actually. I think what you're seeing right now is there's all these headlines that's coming out of, um, you know, that area of the world right now. Realistically, even with where oil prices are today, yes, there was a jump, but they're still about 7% lower than they were when these conflicts started, which yeah. are, they're not seeing this as a problem. It's really what they're looking at for next year, which you bring up, right? There's likely going to be oversupply. And also, as was mentioned, was, um, I believe it was yesterday, Russia said that they were actually going to increase output 
But even with that, that's not affecting this. Well, right, it's all supply and demand for next year. That's exactly what energy is telling us today. Are we just being a little too complacent, though? I mean, they're going to try and form a Red Sea task force to try and enforce security in the area. There are a lot of shipping companies that are halting shipments through this mm-hmm. through this area. I mean, a lot well, of other things besides oil travel through this area. We just sort of, you know what, this is no big deal. Well, I, I, you know, speaking to maybe broader inflationary supply disruption, supply chain, boy, we've, we've, we've gone through that over the last few years. And, and back to at least what it means for oil. I think there are structural reasons to own oil. I mean, I, I think geopolitics are a hedge for your portfolio, and, and oil is definitely that. And again, the operational uh, improvements in these companies is something that I think is one of the most powerful things. But, but we're having this conversation really in the context of what does it mean for the market? What's it saying? Dan's you know, bringing up some decent points. I, I think we've heard for two days, we've heard since Friday afternoon, uh, a chorus of Fed officials trying to, trying to backtrack off of Powell. And, and so the sense is, you know, first of all, is Powell trying to, and I, I feel like if Guy was here, he, no one hates this expression probably more than Guy other than maybe me, but thread the needle, like is the, fret, the Fed threading the needle in terms of is Powell trying to avoid recession yet kill inflation? And I, I think it's probably impossible. Um, and it's pretty clear, though, that in the last four or five days, a lot of people, including ex-New York Fed uh, Bill Dudley, who I, I listened to, who says it would be a huge mistake for the Fed to start to really get off the inflation fighting. So I'm not sure that the Fed is. Maybe we've misinterpreted Mr. Powell. But, but the point is that if the Fed is not as aggressive in terms of easing next year as the market is already pricing in, what's it mean for equities? Because equities are expecting this. I mean, just in the past couple of business days, we had Austin Goolsby this morning. We had... Uh, Mester non-voting, but Mester yeah. earlier today, we had Williams last Williams week. on Friday. Yeah, Austin everybody's walking week. it back. Everybody's trying to walk this back. Right, right. What's the purpose of that? Was Look, it a mistake that he was he was way too dovish? Dovish, yeah. I, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously maybe certain parts of the market have gotten ahead of themselves. And what's priced in right now is, I think, like 140 basis points of cuts next year, which is probably not achievable. I mean, our economists are looking for maybe 100. Um, I do think that the reason to own equities is not because of what the Fed is going to do next year. The reason to own equities is because of what the Fed has already done. I mean, think about it. We're in a normal market environment now. We have real rates that are at kind of reasonable levels. We've got five percentage points of latitude to ease our way out of the next recession. I kind of don't care as much how many times the Fed cuts interest rates. And I know that sounds like heresy because we're all watching the Fed with bated breath. But it sort of is because, I mean, we've seen such a huge move after this pivot, this major pivot that Powell gave to us. We saw the move, but yeah, you're right. He could have been wearing a Santa Claus hat that day. I mean, basically, he is going to be the reason for the rally into year end. Well, but there was already a pretty strong rally Mm -hmm. into year end before that. So I think that, you know, maybe he just threw a little gas on the flames. But my sense is, you know, we're not necessarily betting on a super accommodative Fed next year. I think you can still own equities even if the economy is is continuing to grind higher, even if we get a little bit of a resurgence in inflation. I think goods inflation would actually be a Good. positive for, you know, the S&P. So, Savita, since I've been in the market since 1997, um, there's been three instances where the Fed has cut interest rates. And never has it been something of a, just a casual effect. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm just telling you. So when they have cut, yeah. they have cut aggressively. Because of something going wrong. Correct. Yes, yes, and yes. So, in 2000, so we should never want the Fed to cut two, interest rates, right. actually. But, yeah. they, but, but they just told us there's a good chance of it. They just told us Fed funds is, is, is pricing it in. They're pricing 140 basis points of cuts. I mean, what are they seeing? Well, that the dots. 
back to the, what I'm the talking dots about. Tell you, the dots yeah, tells the dots. you what they're thinking. So, so what I'm saying is, is like it would be uh, very different this time mm-hmm. that when they start to cut, they don't have to use a well, good part of yeah. that 5% or 5 and a quarter that they've been raising over the last two years or so. I mean, that, that, so to me, I just think if you're here and you're YOLOing equities because everything sounds great. Have at it. Pro- have well, at it, maybe. Could, one could, could have, have at it, Tim. But, <laughs> but or you might take a step back and start to think a little bit critically because as much as the recession was priced in this time last year, right, where the market was trading, it's priced the other way right now. Right, and to your right, point, you right. use the term complacency. So I, I just think we can see how things kind of shape up in the new year before we kind of get all geeked up about stuff. Well, maybe this time is different, though. Yeah. Aren't a lot of things different it, about us. this time? I mean, but there are a lot of things that are different today than there, you know, than there have been historically. I mean, if you think about the easing and tightening channels for credit, it hasn't been banks. It's been shadow lending. If you think about the Fed balance sheet, we're at unprecedented levels. In the shadow of, banking system? I mean, I think that there are risks, but they're not necessarily in public equities. I, I'm just saying there's a lot that's different this cycle. Like, look at the Fed balance sheet. It's very different from all of the prior, you know, cycles that we've Much bigger. Through. I would, much you're, it sounds like you're thinking that it's much different in a worse way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, 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 I think it's worse for your Fed balance. Yeah. Uh, you know, private credit is going to be a problem. Right. right? Uh, obviously. So the transmission mechanisms are, are different. Yeah, I mean, look, look at what kind of worked its way into it this time, right? The Fed was still involved in quantitative tightening when we had the sure. regional banking crisis, and they pulled off, you know, uh, you know, something of triple Indy or something like that. You know, and just think about it. Like, but we need to do a PSA on what the triple Indy was, by is. the way. Straight out yeah, of old well, school. So, I mean, yeah. this is yeah. uh, Rodney Dangerfield, et cetera, et cetera. But, but we're, we're at a place where, Savita, one of your, I think, your, your strong arguments is that old economy stocks are poised for an earnings renaissance based upon productivity gains. And that's part of the dynamic. We've had an earnings recession. Forget yeah. the, the economy. We've had an earnings recession. We've had an earnings and, recession. And your, your peers around the street, whether they be strategists, whether they be quants, are saying, we see, in fact, the street's got 10.5% uh, earnings growth, growth in 24. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and is that where it's coming from? Is it coming from these old economy stocks? Because I own a few and it hasn't been a good run. I think it's coming from a little bit of everything. And you're right. It has been miserable to own old economy stocks this year. But if you think about it, those are the companies that can benefit from a lot of these new tools, these productivity enhancements, AI. I mean, AI isn't just about semiconductors and software. It's also about old clunky companies becoming lighter, labor lighter and, and you know, getting a little bit leaner and, and getting some margins. Um, so I think that, that this is the time to own old economy, and we've already seen that broadening out of performance. I think since the beginning of November, the equal-weighted S&P has outperformed the cap-weighted S&P, not by a huge amount. So I think that next year you start to see more of that broadening trend. Yep. Um, by the way, triple that was the worst definition of triple indie ever. I'm sorry. My, it was <laughs> from Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah, old school. Back to school. Back to school. Back to school. All right, old school is a different movie, and of course, that's uh, yeah, that's Will Ferrell, and yeah. Anyway, also a great movie, by the way, and I think we need to have more references to that (laughs) on this show as well. Back to school, Rodney. Yes. All right. Back to the topic, though. Thank you. Yes. I'm still thinking about what you said about what the Fed does next year. It doesn't matter. Do you agree? If we knew, if we could look in a crystal ball and say the Fed is not going to cut rates at all next year, at all, not one single cut. Would you be as long equities as you are now for the next year? Or would you be as bullish as you are? 
today? So I think some of the run-up that's already happened is assuming that they're going to be cutting rates, and I think they're probably overshooting it, right? I mean, they're expecting, what, six rate cuts next year, which is in all likelihood not going to happen. So I think a certain aspect of that will pull back. I don't think all of that will pull back because I think as as much as the Fed interest rates are going to matter, what's more important is companies' earnings. If this earnings recession is coming to an end and we see earnings increase in next year, that's far more important than what the Fed is doing. I think that's what people need to focus on. I feel like the markets just, they do not want to hear what these Fed officials are saying. These Fed officials are saying no cuts are imminent. It's too early to be talking right. about this. Right. And that tells me that it's really pricing. Well, it doesn't happen. Yeah. No recession is now consensus, too. So, I mean, right. this was it was the opposite. opposite so we, yeah. and this is for an S&P that's up 15 and a half percent since the, the turn in the markets on October 26th. It's for a market that, you know, at the other side of that, though, and I'm going to say it like until big companies stop really outperforming. Tavita mentions, I mean, the, the equal weighted's not really had that great of a run. It's, yeah. it's up three and a half percent since that CPI number in mid-November. That's nice. Um, but I think great. look, yeah. semi, semis have outperformed the S&P of making relative highs after relative highs day after day. They're up 11 percent to the S&P from their highs back two years ago. So why aren't semis going to continue to go higher here? I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why they couldn't. But until they don't, they go higher. All right. Let's get back to oil here. Uh, bring in CIBC private wealth's Rebecca Babin. She's the firm's senior equity trader and managing director. Rebecca, welcome to Fast Money. Thanks for being with us. So, so we are trying to figure out what oil's message is. If you look at the price action, I mean, up one and a half percent is not a whole lot. Um, what, what do you think it's telling us? Yeah, so I think oil is telling you two things. First, it's telling you it's not going to rally on supply-driven events. And you touched on a couple of reasons why. The first, obviously, we have a ton of spare capacity sitting on the sideline from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They are literally chomping at the bit to bring back more production. So any supply event has a buffer to it because you have spare capacity. The second thing I think that the market is telling you is, again, you mentioned it, we're looking at 2024 and we're concerned that the market is actually going to end up being oversupplied. And the reason the market's so worried about this isn't that where you know demand is going to get cratered. We're looking at demand growth next year of around one and a half million barrels a day. It's not a terrible number, but what we saw in 2023, which was the surprise of the crude market, was incredible production out of the United States, well above our estimates. We're estimating coming into this year that U.S. production is going to grow at 700,000 barrels a day. We're at 1.1, right? So if we get another year where U.S. production vastly outperforms estimates, which estimates are looking for 500,000 barrels a day of growth out of the U.S. next year, but we get that incremental efficiency productivity like we saw this year, you get a market that's even more oversupplied. So I think it's more of a supply story going into 2024. There's a lot of fear that the, that no matter what OPEC does, no matter how much they cut, there are producers, non-OPEC producers, that are just going to fill that hole. They keep digging. So ultimately, I think that's what the market's telling you. As it relates to the Suez Canal, one important thing, you noted it in the lead up, the biggest increase of flows through the Suez Canal has been by Russia. They're shipping their barrels to India and China. It's very unlikely the Houthis are going to target 
Russian crude. The Iran-Russian relationship has been getting stronger and continues to be strong. So although that headline number, 8% of demands at risk, it's much smaller because they're not going to target a Russian ship. Lastly, the task force is in place. I think that gives a little bit of confidence. I, I, I agree. you got to question the ability of that to act. But I think all of those things, all in all, crude's looking at it and saying, you know, I don't chase supply-driven rallies. I chase inventory drawdowns and I chase exponential demand growth. So we saw a real surge in European natural gas prices on the back of this, Rebecca. And I'm wondering if you think that keeps up. And, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this as a piece of the puzzle of the European Central Bank, what it needs to do and how it's trying to fight inflation. That's a great point. So although crude isn't reacting to this, you're right, nat gas is. And the problem there is they don't have a lot of alternatives for their nat gas flows. So that is actually where you will see probably continued impact if this isn't resolved and if we have to reroute the extra two and a half weeks around the Cape of Good Hope, right? So that is a real impact. The other place the market is assigning real risk to it is in diesel and in products, again, into Europe. We saw crack spreads up 8% today and they're going to hold because Europe can't just look to Russia to backfill those products. It's not like crude oil where it's as fungible and it's easy to access. So you probably will see longer lasting impacts in gas and in products where there isn't that massive spare capacity or readily available alternatives. All right, Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Rebecca Babin, CIBC. All right, so now knowing and understanding that the real risk is to the European energy markets, Tim, I'm wondering if that changes your outlook for Europe at all. Again, I, I don't know how long this risk lives on. You had a very weak EFO number in Germany, which is their kind of state of the economy. After four really solid months, we've seen the DAX at all-time highs. I think relative value, it gets back to, again, relative to itself, the DAX is actually kind of attractive here. Um, do I think Europe's running away? No, I think their economy is going to be weaker than ours uh, in the coming 12 months. But I don't think this is a headline. Remember what Europe had to endure with Russia and, and what was going on there in terms of gas prices and the inflationary impact. Yeah. Do you like energy here? I love energy. I think energy right is a long-term <laughs> uh, core holding. I mean, I, I look at companies like the majors. I mean, you're getting a great dividend yield. You're getting inflation protection just in case we're not out of the woods on inflation. Um, I feel like it's, you know, it's, it's basically tips on steroids. Uh, it's got, you know, kind of everything that you want in your portfolio as a ballast. And then I think that on top of that, these companies have finally gotten religion around supply discipline, around cash return and capital allocation. They're no longer paid on production targets. So I think these are all really positive uh, themes for the energy sector. And it's very underowned at this point in the year because it's done pretty poorly all year. Um, so I think it's there's there's upside just based on ownership as well. Coming up, looks like Apple will have some time on their hands. The tech giant uh -oh. holding sales of some of its smartwatches with just one week left before Christmas. The patent dispute that's keeping the gear out of shoppers' hands, well, risks. <laughs> More on that ahead. But first, the metal merger shares of U.S. Steel surging after being bought up by a Japanese rival. The price tag and what it'll mean for the industrial space next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee, right here on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of U.S. Steel topping the tape today. The stock surging over 26% after agreeing to be acquired by Japan's Nippon Steel. The price at $55 a share, valuing U.S. Steel at $14.9 billion. That's a nearly 40% premium to Friday's close, almost double the rejected offer made by Cleveland Cliffs this summer. The deal giving the rest of the space, uh, the steel space specifically, a boost with the SLX Steel ETF hitting its highest level since May. 2011. We're saying, what is oil telling us? What does this deal tell us in terms of demand for steel? Well, I I don't think we should believe that this is a time for a feeding frenzy in the space. And I think those that have gotten bigger have gotten bigger. I think there are the new cores and of of those folks that have higher quality steel and operate in different segments. Um, I I think it is important to say that miners uh, around the world, at least some of the some of the folks that actually mine for the stuff that you use to make steel, I think are very interesting. And, and I think, you know, someone like Cliffs, um, you know, the, the, the word is that they're not going to be on the acquisition trail. They're actually going to be buying back stock. And that's great for, for that share price. But the fact that you saw Posco and some of the other biggest, you know, Mattel, biggest steel companies in the world rallying on this, there is some sense um, that assets are in play and those that are bigger are going to get bigger and it doesn't matter. They, they paid more than a 50 percent premium to the historic EV EBITDA multiple on U.S. steel. Um, and I think this deal will go through. I don't think there's any strategic complications with this. I think Not Nippon steel workers. Well, I'll let I'll let those folks figure that out. Brian Sullivan's going to do something tonight with the, the head of the union. That'll be interesting to listen to. Um, but I, I, I just think if you think about at least the geopolitics and you think about some of the CFIUS dynamics, this look, Nippon steel is kind of friend. And, you know, they have a footprint that would say they could be in the U.S. And it means that there might be more steel in the U.S., and I don't think it's great right. for steel prices. The U.S. steel workers have already said that they don't believe Nippon Steel because Nippon, Nippon has already said that they will honor all commitments, including the labor commitments that are in place, but U.S. steel workers don't believe it and are against the steel, which I thought was sort of an interesting wrinkle because they approved or they liked the Cliff Steel. Yeah, so I think we'll have to see if it goes through because it's expected to go through late next year, so we still have some time for that. But I think either way, actually, I think steel looks interesting because when you look at between the CHIPS Act, the IRA Act, the Infrastructure Act, about $2 trillion of, of spending that I think is really underappreciated right now. And really, they're, they're looking at things like that, but also that steel is needed for EVs when you look at those clean energy vehicles. And I think the future is that's where things are going, and that's what they're trying to get a piece of right now. Yeah, so I'd take issue with the underappreciated aspect of those three you know, legislative acts because I think they're very well embedded in a lot of industrials and a lot of, you know, in a lot of areas areas of the market. So like that goes back to what helped buoy the market this year. I think optimism about some of that stuff. Just look at some of the stuff that, you know, Intel's move that it's had over the last, you know, few months or so. And I think that's largely predicated um, on the IRA. And when you 
think about all this stuff that we talk about, supply chain disruptions and deglobalization and all the macro issues, it all lends itself to those legislation, you know, those legislative acts that are really, I think, you know, a tailwind for a lot of U.S. industrial companies. So I think they're in the market. I'm, I think you're totally right to bring them up, though. I mean, I think it's in industrials. You're totally right about that. But I don't necessarily think it's in materials and energy. And I, and I still think those are two sectors that are very hard to hold because of their kind of emissions risk and, you know, European um, regulations around owning, you know, big emitters. So I think industrials is pricing in all the fiscal stimulus and then some, which means, you know, maybe don't buy industrials, but steel, uh, metals, all of the, the, the metals that go into EV, I don't think those companies are really pricing in the demand and the amount of money that's earmarked to be spent on those types Sounds of Sounds like projects. she's disagreeing with you again, Deb. I'm just, I'm not, not sure. Know what, but, but you know what's interesting? But so I, I, maybe know. our staff, they, they can put up the XME, okay? And, and they can just like do that over, let's say, the last 15 years or so. Every time we have a recession, this thing loses 75% of its value. So what would I say to you if you want to chase them right here, you know? Have at it. There you go. People. 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 Uh, right. Have at it. We mentioned this before, but do not miss United Steelworkers President David McCollum. Last call tonight. That's 7 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. A lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Time is money, and Apple's giving up both this holiday season. The reason behind the sales stoppage, next. And while we're trotting out the cliches, talk is cheap. Our next guest says even though the Fed may have changed its tune, they're not out of the woods just yet. The real read on where rates are headed next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple really running out the clock ahead of the holidays. The tech giant announcing today it will pause the sale of some of its Apple watches starting Thursday due to a patent dispute over their blood oxygen feature. The International Trade Commission siding with medical device maker Massimo, a move that prevents Apple from importing and selling the Series 9 and Ultra 2 in the U.S. in October. So what could this mean for Apple's revenue? I like how they get most of their sales really for the Christmas season because they don't stop selling this thing till Thursday. I mean, people, you've got plenty of time to go out and get one if you if you want one. Um, but what do you think of this in terms of Apple's? I, I, I can't remember the last time we were talking about watches as being a driver for Apple. So, I mean, I, I know that sounds like, yeah, sorry, but I mean, you know, like we, we had a conversation late last week about China and yep. the increased pressure from the state-owned enterprises and the broadening of the Apple bands. Like, those are the conversations that make sense. I, you know, Apple, the stock, in terms of how it's performed here. It's obviously very close to all-time highs. I will say um, it's not making new relative highs to the S&P. And if I was looking within that MAG7 group, um, Meta, Amazon, Google, those are charts that are breaking out, not Apple. Yeah. Courtney, what do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think they need to get more into services. I don't think their watch is really going to be the make or break it, but they are one of the biggest watch producers, right? So about 60% of smartwatches come from Apple. I think it was interesting, you pointed this out, that they're waiting until the 21st. Like, they didn't come out and say, oh, we're doing this today. They said, oh, everybody, wait. If you're doing your Christmas shopping, you have till Thursday. Like, I think they're doing this on purpose. And it's interesting because the Biden administration does have, I think, until the 25th to overturn this. And I do wonder how much of that is saying, OK, we're going to pause our sales. One of the bigger companies out there going into an election year. Are they just trying to make sure that some of this goes through and they're trying to put their foot down? Wearables are important for them. I mean, you think about their strategy going forward, right? Like, I mean, Vision Pro, I know we laughed it off a lot. There's a lot of folks that are really excited about this whole strategy going forward. And when you talk about services, services is a big part of that strategy going forward. So, um, again, you know, this is for how many how many years have we talked about these sorts of like patent disputes and everything like that? And they really don't even make a dent ever, you know, but it is important to think about a little bit. I guess I'm more in Tim's camp, like the headline last week about further ban Apple products. That's a much bigger issue. Yeah. Coming up, is the rate cut convo a bit premature? Why your next guest says the Fed may be getting ahead of itself and why Powell isn't out of the woods just yet. More on that next. Plus, just a figma of your imagination why Adobe scrapped a $20 billion software deal and what it says about the future of M&A in the space. Much more Fast Money in two. Missed a moment of Fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Kicking off the week in the green, trying to extend their seven-day winning streak. The S&P and Nasdaq both up about a half a percent. The Nasdaq now on an eight-day win streak. Shares of VF Corp dropping today. The apparel company saying they suffered a cybersecurity breach and they expect it to have a material impact on their business. All before the big holiday rush, VF Corp is down more than 30 percent this year. And a couple of fang names hitting 52-week highs. Netflix, Meta, and Amazon all trading near those levels. While investors may want to temper their enthusiasm over potential rate cuts, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby telling Squawk Box this morning he's confused by the post-Fed decision market rally. Goolsby believes the market may have un- misunderstood the Fed's intended message about cutting in 2024. The market expectation of the number of rate cuts is, is greater than what the SEP projection is. So whether that's priced in or not priced in, that is a difference. Joining us with some reaction, Torsten Slock, chief economist at Apollo Global Management. Torsten, great to have you with us. Um, it's not just schools be walking. I mean, every single Fed official who has come out since the Fed meeting last week has tried to backpedal, and the markets just do not want to listen. What do you think is going on here? Well, I think that they are quite worried that financial conditions, if they ease too much, it may complicate their job of getting inflation back to 2%. Remember last week we got core CPI, which is now at 4%, 4.0, and their goal is to get it down to 2. 4 is not 2, so we still have quite a road to go here before we get down there. And I think they are telling us that uh, let's just uh, take a little break here and figure out, well, if this is going to take a longer time, then it will certainly come with more Fed hawkishness than what the market is interpreting from what he said last week. Do you think that the, uh, well, obviously, the, well, do you think the markets are mistaken or do you think the Fed made an error in, in letting the markets think that? Because it did seem that everybody walked away with that conclusion that a pivot is underway and that there will be cuts next year. I do think that when you look at the dual mandate of inflation has to get to 2% and we have to be at full employment, an honest assessment is that they were right. 
in the sense that we have to recognize that inflation has come down faster. So on the back of that, I do think that they just said, well, the data is better than we expected. And on the back of that, I think that they were surprised that markets interpreted that as dovish as markets have done. So I think it's both them having no other choice than to recognize that things are getting better, but also at the same time, the market over-interpreting what he was saying. Because I think that the fact all these FOMC members afterwards coming out and saying, no, 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 this was the wrong interpretation, I think that should make us all investors see, hey, hold on, maybe this was not the right interpretation. Are you concerned that the negative impact on the economy is now greater? In other words, that the soft landing scenario is actually more jeopardized because of what the Fed has done and because of the of the you know resurgence and risk assets that will be underway because of this pivot, as opposed to if we just left rates higher for longer and stuck by that and waited? Well, I think that the easing in financial conditions could almost switch us back to no landing because now we will probably have still a strong housing market. You saw the home builder sentiment today rebound. Next employment report could be decent. You could also begin to see consumer spending be decent. All that could suggest that the economy is now getting a lift, which is, again, complicating their mission to get inflation back from 4% down to 2%. So, Torsten, the last time the 10-year yield was at 3.9%, which is essentially where it is right now, was kind of early August or so. The S&P 500 has rallied 10% since then. So talk to us a little bit about that disconnect, because the move from 4 to 5 and back down here was pretty quick, right? And it really didn't get embedded into the economy so much. So what is, like, if you're buying stocks here at 52-week highs, very very near all-time highs. Where do you expect the 10-year yield to be to continue that rally in equities? Yeah, I think an important starting point for that is exactly, well, where did we come from and where are we going? And we came from a point where supply chains were getting straightened out after COVID. That has been the low-hanging fruit for inflation to come down from five or six in core inflation to now around four. But the last mile is indeed going to be a lot harder because now we're actually beginning to see supply chain risk appearing again. So that might mean that, well, the easy part of getting down with inflation was really all what was behind us. But ahead of us is now not only do we have the Red Sea flare up and everything that's potentially putting upward pressure on inflation, but we also have easing financial conditions that could also complicate this job of getting inflation from four down to two. So that's why I think that the pendulum now has swung too much in the dovish direction. And our Fed readings will basically have to go back and the Fed communication will have to go back exactly as we're seeing today also to be more hawkish. I agree. I mean, but do you think there's any wiggle room around 2%? Like, could they could they change the number or change the target? Because it's kind of arbitrary. And 2% is actually pretty low relative to history. That's true. I think Loretta Mesta has said it very well. We may change the target, but only once we're back at 2 so they have no until we get there. Yeah, I know. Don't, don't change the goalposts and move them around in the middle of the game. So I think that they're saying to maintain our credibility. We've been told by Congress that this should be 2%, meaning getting inflation back to 2% is our goal. We have to get it back to 2 Then we can have that conversation. So I do think that at this point, literally all FOMC members, without exception, have said we've got to get down to 2 to make sure that markets, in particular in rates, don't come out with the expectation that the inflation target is going to change. Because think about it, if they tomorrow came out and said, we're now changing the inflation target to, say, 4%, what would long rates do? They might jump exactly with 200 basis points because now people want to say, well, I want to be compensated for the risk that the erosion of my bond portfolio is no longer 2%, but is now 4%. Right. So I think that changing the target and moving the goalpost in the middle of the game, I think they are signaling very clearly that's just not going to happen. But, Torsten, I want to get to the other side of Melissa's question, which was like a second derivative you know, impact of what the markets are going to do to the economy. So if, if, you, if we are 5% on the tenure, I'm just curious on, on your view on the economy for 24. 
Well, um, in other words, if, if conditions are seemingly tighter, um, if the market hadn't run ahead of the Fed, um, do you want to see rates higher because you think that is in the best interest long term for the U.S. economy? I think what's required to get inflation back to 2% is that we need higher rates for longer. In other words, in particular, wage inflation is still average hourly earnings that just came out is still 4%. So the service sector and super call CPI is still quite elevated. And if we got to get the service sector down in terms of inflation, that means that wage inflation needs to come down. So there's a very important debate about can we get even inflation back to 2% without weakness in the labor market. So far, it's been impressive how strong the labor market has been. But I do think that as we go through the next several quarters, we will see, and this is also the Fed's forecast, this is a consensus forecast, we will see the labor market weaken. And therefore, to your question, Tim, we will therefore also begin to see a slowdown in earnings. And that's why I do think that earnings expectations that you spoke about earlier, they are too optimistic relative to the view that we are simply just not done fighting inflation yet. And therefore, we do need rates higher for longer. Torsten, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. Torsten Slock, Apollo. Coming up, a hearty healthy helping of headlines in the obesity drug space may be cementing who will be the ultimate winners in this space. All the details next, plus a $20 billion merger dead in the water thanks to regulatory holdups overseas. What led to the holdup and what it might mean for future dealmaking in this tech space. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Adobe calling off its $20 billion acquisition of cloud-based design tool Figma due to regulatory hurdles in Europe and the UK. Adobe CEO Shantanu Narayan told CNBC just last Wednesday he still expected the deal to go through. Adobe will pay a $1 billion breakup fee to Figma, and the two companies say they will continue trying to partner with one another in the future. Adobe shares up more than 2% on this news. This sort of tells you, though, Courtney, that maybe getting a deal done in the tech space is going to be very difficult. Yeah, quite possibly. And I think what you also want to look at is they had a billion dollar breakup fee for this. But there's been all of this talk about AI this year. And a lot of these companies just have this, we call it pixie dust. Like they have the, the thought that they can benefit from AI. They're one of the few companies that are actually already implementing AI into things that their customers can benefit from. I think that's that's what you have to look at is that is worth more to them than a billion dollar breakup fee. And that's why it's still doing well. Yeah. And also, you know, they just reported last week and some of the guidance, I mean, investors were kind of disappointed. And we didn't think it was that big of a deal what they guided for for the full year. But the stock was down five, six percent. It's not a small company. It was near a $300 billion market cap. And I think what they're saying is is, listen, we're going to take half of that expected purchase price. We're going to buy back more stock. And they have a great balance sheet to do that. A lot of cash flow generation, obviously. So um, it's fine. It's just up a lot. And it's not a cheap stock. All right. Coming up after this break, an obesity upset. Shares of Structure Therapeutics having their worst day on record after disappointing data on its latest drug trial. We'll bring you the skinny on that one mm. next. More Fast Money in Two. Welcome back to Fast Money. A healthy dose of headlines coming out of the obesity drug space today. Structure Therapeutics dropping more than 40% after data on its oral GLP-1 treatment fell short of what Eli Lilly saw for its pill that's in development. Lilly and Novo Nordisk meantime closed in the green following a study that found anti-inflammatory benefits from their injectables. Angelica Peebles is here with all the details. Angelica. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, so the structure today saying that the roughly 90-person trial, um, they looked at the, um, there were two groups, people with type 2 diabetes and people with obesity. And so they were saying that it was the results from the um, diabetes group that sent the stock tumbling. And so what we saw 
was that people in that group lost around 3% of their body weight and their blood sugar dropped by about 1% after 12 weeks. And both of those numbers were lower than what analysts were looking for. And those were also lower than the numbers from Eli Lilly's experimental pill. And the obesity group did better. People there lost around 5% of their body weight after eight weeks. And structure was stressing that the pill was safe and well tolerated. Only one person in both of those groups dropped out because of the side effects. And there's also another study out today, like you mentioned, suggesting that GLP-1s can reduce inflammation. And that might explain some of the other health benefits that we're seeing, like those on the heart. But it's also important to know that this was a mouse study, and so it's too, too soon to know for sure what's going on here. And we'll need more human data to validate those results. Melissa? What I thought, it, what Angelica, was interesting about the study was that it was done by one of the um, researchers who discovered the GLP-1 compound. So it, it seems like, wow, this, you know, he, he's the one who discovered he's finding new uses because the implications of finding anti-inflammatory applications is, is use for this drug in chronic pain and in other areas. Yeah, and we've already seen that these companies are trying to look at the, um, the effects of GLP-1s in other conditions. We already have a trial underway from Novo looking at the drug in Alzheimer's disease. And the idea there is because there might be some role with inflammation. Um, again, like you saw with the heart disease um, study earlier this year, we saw, um, we saw an effect on the heart even before people lost weight. And so the idea is that something else is happening and that's where the inflammation might come into play. Angelica, thanks. Angelica Peebles. And of course, the, you know, the, the rap before was, oh, well, if people lose weight, of course, the heart disease goes away, right? A lot of the preconditions for heart disease goes, goes away. But this is actually saying that it is the drug itself. It is the pathways sure. from the brain that are making this go away, which is, that's almost a, a whole, game changer yeah, that, here. Look, that's extraordinary. And, and, but we've spent so much time talking about where uh, GLP-1s have been a wrecking ball for peripheral industries, or at least certainly like medtech. Um, Jeffrey's had a really interesting report out a couple of days ago, basically saying, like, we think the costs um, of, you know, essentially people, you know, the, the trillion dollar cost to the American public on this is too much. And that actually we just don't think, you're, they don't question the top line in the addressable market. They question the adoption. And they question at least the ability for people at some point. And that ultimately it gets back to the medtech and that these are uh, companies that have been destroyed by this. So. You know, another theme this year was the labor gains that we saw all over the place mm -hmm. in the yeah. U.S. Think about the impact if labor starts getting, uh, you know what I mean, more sway. They're going to want these drugs. Like, so these drugs in particular. Right, so when you talk about, you know what I mean, the, the uptake of these sorts of things, I think there's a lot of competing, you know, kind of trends um, in place right now, especially positive for these guys. All right. Up next, final trades. for the final trade, Savita. Okay, I love the equal weighted S&P 500. I, it started to work, but there's so much more to go. Um, valuations are attractive. Nobody owns these stocks. It's all about the Magnificent Seven. Own the equal weighted S&P. Tim? So great having Savita here. And also having her joust a little bit with Dan has also been fun. <laughs> so uh, we talked about gold miners or miners. I like gold, but I like GFI as a gold miners. They've underperformed as a group. Courtney? Uh, small cap value. Small caps really took a turn last week. They're about 5% in a day. They're trading at a 12% discount to their history. Take a look. 
Dan. Seller ITB buyer Guy Adami. Happy yes, birthday, happy Guy Adami. Buddy, we miss you, pal. Buddy. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.